Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on this episode, writer Eric Schwartzel is here to talk his book, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Now, this may, going into a hotbed of geopolitics, might seem a little out of my uh, wheelhouse, but this book, in particular, if you aren't aware, in 2020 alone, it had been forecast to happen much later in the 2020s. But in 2020, in the pandemic year, China outgrossed the United States in theatrical film going. Yeah, so Eric is here. We discussed that amongst uh, China's film history and what how that pertains to uh, Hollywood. There's a lot of conversation about this thing called soft power and how the United States uh, and their success in, the, in with Hollywood is partially responsible for America's success worldwide over the last century. And especially when you talk about certain concepts coming up, like the the, the prediction that this century is going to be the Asian century, or um, there were supposedly these leaks st- uh, statistics from China's census that says it's supposed to have a bad age uh, uh, demographic problem coming up. Uh, I, I think I'd heard a stat that said, according to this data, that there are uh, more pe- more uh, people over 45 than are under 45 in China. It's just a fascinating conversation with uh, large ramifications. But first up, what I watched uh, recently, I've had um, the most interesting thing I saw, I think is actually playing this month at the New Beverly, but it was on TCM. It's a uh, New World Corbin movie called The Velvet Vampire. It's I had heard it recommended by Edgar Wright. Um, it's It comes from like this era of drive-in, I guess, well before softcore would be seen. And I guess this is, drive-in would be providing some of that. Uh, so it's a, it's a very sexy movie directed by Stephanie Rothman. And it stars Celeste Yarnell, who you might recognize as the green woman from uh, Star Trek. I forget which episode that is. And I'm not going to lie. There's a lot. It's a very stiffly acted movie. Uh, A lot of the plot choices do not make sense. But I could not take my eyes off this movie. It was like grossly hypnotic. Um, Just great, great trash to watch. Um, Other interesting watches, uh, Tobacco Road. So this comes from a period for John Ford. This movie is from 1941. But starting in 1939... He directed, this has got to be one of the greatest streaks of any Hollywood director, 1939 Stagecoach, 1939 Young Mr. Lincoln, Young, or 1939 Drums Along the Mohawk, 1940 The Grapes of Wrath, 1940 The Long Voyage Home, 1941 Tobacco Road, 1941 How Green Was My Valley. Now, Tobacco Road is, we should be up, up front, is the weakest of it. It's based on a play by a, a really popular play that was based on a novel by Erskine Caldwell. Uh, and it was sold as like from the maker and the poster said from the makers of uh, uh, Grapes of Wrath. But being a comedy, there's some really, really broad takes in it. But at the same time, what's interesting about it is being so play based, you know, a filmmaker like John Ford, who just, you know, perpetually shoots wide wide shots of deep focus on location the he he's going to make he's going to open it up in an interesting way uh, yeah it's it, i would i would i think it's easily the weakest of that streak long voyage home itself is not is maybe up there but 
all these movies, um, yeah, nothing recent I've seen. Uh, Velvet Vampires, 1971, uh, Tobacco Road, 1941, and going back to 1932, Million Dollar Legs. Now, if you've listened to our episode about uh, Raising Kane, Pauline Kael's essay on the making of Citizen Kane, the thing that led into Mank, we talked a lot about that movie uh, on that episode, which I had not yet seen then because Herman Mankiewicz wrote on this. And this is a pre-code uh, movie with W.C. Fields. What's really funny is uh, interesting about it. It's very much a proto, not just a proto Marx Brothers movie, but proto Duck Soup because it's about a fictionalized country um, and W.C. Fields plays its president. Um, but it's also pre-code. So there's a lot of fun jokes in there. Um, it's, it is a, it is, it is a witty movie at, on the dawn of the talkie. So there's a lot of like nascent film techniques we know now. Um, some of it is, it's, it's interesting to watch a little housekeeping. So we started this third season a while back and as you might've noticed, been wildly inconsistent with releasing and I'm sad to let you know that we'll be more inconsistent as uh, I got a gig. Uh, I got an editing job uh, and I'll hopefully let more known about that in, week, in the next few weeks and months. But we're probably going to have to cut back uh, whenever I, I know when I'm working on a movie, my brain goes strictly to the movie and it's hard to get your brain around a podcast. So but anyway, here is Eric Schwartzel and I hope you enjoy this episode. I was trying to figure it out. I think you're my first fresh air guest that's done the podcast. Oh, wow. Awesome. Um, I'm honored. Yes. That was a surreal experience. It's um I'll tell you like it's it's funny because like they they're still sort of operating in in covid protocol world so you don't go into a studio you just call this app on your phone and they record that way and when Terry Gross gets on the line she goes hi it's Terry Gross I'll be conducting the interview and it's like yeah I know I know I know who you are and what your role is here it's it's okay <laughs> you know do you do you know anything about the um he's the cartoonist uh, Adrian Tomine? He did um Optic Nerve. He's like a New Yorker artist right now, I think. Um Mm-mm. he came out with a new book and one of the chapters is about how surreal it was uh being on fresh air because like he went to a random studio and he just while he's trying to get through the interview at the corner of his eye, he's he's in the middle of midtown New York and he sees like I think it was like someone having sex in a window while he's trying to do his fresh air interview. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, well, I have a window here, but I d- it has no such access. So I, th- I think we'll be okay. okay. I, th- I think if you see something, you'll be able to get through this interview. Um, you're the second Wall Street Journal uh, reporter, though. I, I had a or Ben Fritz on early on. Oh, yeah, I know Ben. I know yeah, of you, course. You, yeah, uh, I liked his book, The uh, the Big Picture. So. Yeah, when did you have him on? Very early on, actually. Like, I read his book right after it came out, and he was like, the third or fourth guest on the show actually he was really good he was cool i mean we had a good interview too i mean i I just have the stuff in that book about how uh toys and and blockbusters are working out right now i found very fascinating oh for sure depressed depressing but fascinating yeah yeah totally 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 it's funny my big worry about doing this episode is i mean uh i work as a film editor 
and I'm worried that it's it's I'm inevitably going to say something that's going to make it so that I can never do a studio movie or uh, down the line. That's interesting. I I think you're I think you're safe. I think that uh, okay. a lot of the stuff we're going to be discussing when it comes to China and the studios is is pretty um verified at this point. You know, I don't think we're I don't think it's I don't think it's going to be coming as like any controversy that that the studios care a lot about China and make concessions so that they can stay there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two threads in the book that I found really fascinating, mainly towards the end, where it's, uh, you know, the, the book really outlines all the concessions the studios made for China, all the changes they've made, but China's and the growth of China's own film industry. So the question is, like, how much from here on out is, is Hollywood going to, like, change themselves for China if, if China is not getting them as much money or as much the uh, dumb you use the phrase dumb money a lot which I thought was amazing if China's not going to give them dumb money anymore well the the dumb money um so China's kind of revenue into Hollywood has come in two forms one is the box office sales and just the the sheer number of tickets you can sell there and make money on on the box office and then the dumb money more typically refers to the behind the scenes the investors. Yeah. So the, the Chinese investors that come in and um, this really started to happen around 2013 or 2014. There was just this, like this flood of Chinese money into the movie making process. Um, so they were not only just paying for the production of films, but in some cases acquiring production companies. That's really died down significantly. Um, in fact, it's stopped almost entirely. Um, because the Chinese government decided that they didn't exactly think that it was the, the best investment for their their billionaires to be to be making. So you're right. The dumb money's gone away, in, in, or maybe the dumb money got smart. But <laughs> the, the box office is still is, is more inaccessible than ever, for sure. Not just because um, Chinese movies are better competition, than they used to be, um, but also because the Chinese government's just made it harder for American movies to get into the country. So last year, there were a couple high-profile examples, like this, the new Spider-Man movie, which was this blockbuster everywhere, wasn't released in China. Um, and you're right, it makes it more um, of a question about whether or not they will they will get the um, the money or the movie into, into China. But it doesn't seem like it's going away entirely. I don't see a world where the studios don't at least consider it. And for their big blockbuster releases, do everything they can to limit their risk and not get, not getting in. I mean, they're going to, they're not going to do anything that will jeopardize their chances, even if those chances are slimmer. I mean, I think the introduction you talk about the differences between the original Top Gun and the concessions made with Ma uh, the Top Gun Maverick sequel. So it sounds even though that's a movie that's been on the shelf or through COVID, like that's still something there's still a change is significantly being made to a franchise. So um, in prep for this, after reading after reading the book, uh, I watched one and a half movies, uh, but I sat down and watched Wolf Warrior 2 and uh, fantastic. Yeah, that was a trip. Um, it was, um, it is, you, po you point out in the book, it is the uh, second most gross uh, movie has ever made from one individual country, I think you said? It's some, it has some, it has some statistic like that. It made in excess of $850 million 
or maybe nine hundred. It was the million, first Chinese in the top, in the worldwide top ten gross. Yes, and 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 the key difference being that some something like ninety eight percent of its ticket sales came from one market, whereas a lot of uh, American movies like uh, Wonder Woman or something like that, like if they get to those numbers, it's because they're selling tickets in many markets. Okay. Well, the the book you also detail the. Uh the Russo brothers involvement in helping figure these stuff out. And um, it's the craziest part about this is when I was watching the movie, I was trying to get a bead on if this is some kind of example of what China's filmmaking is like and what they want to represent to the world. You you mentioned the book, they tried to put it up for an Oscar, but it'd be like putting commando up for an Oscar. Um, The Russo's used their, uh, one of their fight coordinators, Sam Hargrave, and Sam Hargrave, uh, did, I guess, did Captain America stunts and other things. But the movie, this remind, American antecedent I could think of, this reminded me more than anything else, was a movie that the Russos produced that they had Sam Hargrave direct called Extraction that was on Netflix. Oh, and, fascinating. Yeah. Well, the movie opened, the uh, Wolf Warrior 2 opened with this fake stitched together digitally stitched together single take fight on a boat and extraction has this like 20 minute one similar one in the middle of it and it's hard to pick pinpoint exactly what blockbuster values china's is taking from america and discarding because i mean i mean the book's so much about what the state is also uh china's state is uh, censorship is telling them not the values like little things like uh, um, uh, ghosts and gay people can't exist in China, in movies in China. Uh, but I mean, the book also goes into strong details, little things like uh, just American slights in there, like the, the U S Navy, the uh, America no longer being a, uh, uh, I don't know, like a sheriff for the world and China having to take that role. It was really fascinating movie. I, I had no, I mean, I, I, I don't have a good knowledge of China, but I was completely unaware of this movie. Yeah, and, and, and I don't think that is unusual, even for someone who follows entertainment like you do, as closely as you do, that you wouldn't have heard of this film. Um, because it was such a Chinese phenomenon. Um, it was a movie that really only, as I said, only sold tickets in China. And when it came out, um, a lot of overseas attention was paid to it because of what you're describing, which was not necessarily the, the sheer economics of it, but the, what, what it represented politically. It was a movie where a, there was a Chinese hero. There was a, it was a movie that looked a lot like the American films you're describing, only it was China in the, um, in the captain's seat. And, and not only that, but America was either the outright enemy or a, an antagonizing force throughout the film. And so it, it, the film actually became quite relevant in political science circles because it was seen as this um, example of China pounding its chest. Um, it came out in 2016, which is really when we started to see this this even more of a divergence between the West and China in terms of what they were willing to fight for, what they wanted to stand up for, um, the values they wanted to project into the world. And so a lot of uh, political scientists like looked to Wolf Warrior too as as ridiculous as it might seem as as another example of kind of like sort of china coming into its own and taking a more aggressive position on the world stage 
Um, so, so you're right. I, there was, there was no reason for you to have probably heard about it through word of mouth. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I, although, I mean, fascinatingly, yeah. I mean, it was released in, it was released in some American theaters. I mean, only really though, um, in communities where there's a, a large Chinese immigrant population. Um, those were the only theaters that it was released into. And then it was released on DVD in the u.s um i remember seeing it at a walmart in my hometown in pennsylvania and i remember thinking like okay. what is that about why why are they doing that and i think it's i think the the effort and i, I don't think it succeeded at all is to try and cast these big jingoistic chinese action films as kind of a latter-day kung fu um or okay. um and and so maybe they can try to sell a few dvds to people who are coming to it because they're interested in big action films like i said though it hasn't really caught on and most people watch it like you did for the experience of seeing what it's like to see a movie where america is the bad guy it uh, i watch it on hoopla the uh, with my library card so that, that's how i saw it but um the the oddest one of the oddest things was the very very final I don't know if you call it the final shot or like the postscript where they had that uh, was it like a shot of a passport and it was almost like the, uh, the Chinese of, passport yeah and and this is like a direct message from the government and it's this very paternal if if a Chinese citizen ever finds themselves uh, in danger in another country we will protect you type that's something you like even at the height of uh, like american propaganda like it's just so so direct address you know yeah like, oh yeah, yeah yeah no 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 the the it's a key distinction between chinese propaganda and let's say american propagandistic films right i don't know if i don't know if it's fair to call it american propagandistic american propaganda but the best comparisons i had for wolf warrior with this was jerry Bruckheimer stuff yeah, that 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 comes up. I see that. I um, those movies where they have to get the military's involvement, so like they write in like a vague Navy commercial, so they can get some uh, free equipment to use the, the equipment and things like that. Difference, the difference, yeah. be, and oftentimes those agreements re require some kind of script approval by the the military, so that they're not kind of co-signing some film that that makes them look bad. But um, obviously a very different dynamic than in China where oftentimes the state will commission movies, um, have to approve the scripts before anything can be shot, um, reserve the right to pull it from theaters if it spreads a message that they disagree with. So I think there's a, I, I'm reluctant, I'm reluctant to say it's a, an apples to apples comparison. Fair enough. But, yeah, fair enough. Um, Cause I think there's just a degree of, a degree of involvement and severity in China that, that America, American filmmakers probably wouldn't, wouldn't tolerate um or maybe audiences too but but you're right there's this sort of there's this really overt and explicit uh message at the end of the film showing a chinese passport and saying you know we will we will defend you no matter where you are you know believe in the motherland and um it's it's pretty ham-handed right i mean I think th yeah. there's a key, this is one of the key differences between the two systems and, and frankly what Chinese leaders have identified as the key disadvantage that they have, which is that um, everyone from uh, Woodrow Wilson to Adolf Hitler realized that the best propaganda doesn't feel like propaganda. Um, mm. and, and that most audiences everywhere resist films that feel medicinal. 
um, or or ham-handed in that way. And so I think that um, that direct messaging is is still a sign of sort of what is still kind of a lack of sophistication on the part of of Chinese filmmakers or Chinese authorities trying to convey a certain message. That it's getting better though. I mean, I have this story in the book about um, the Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot. Um, and mm -hmm. when the, the Patriot was released, uh, Chinese authorities watching it because they wanted to understand how to make, quote, a good propaganda film. Um, and, and, and meaning like very few people, um, very few audience members probably watched the Patriot and thought they were being spoon fed some revisionist narrative about the American revolution. Instead, they probably thought it was a fun movie, you know, and it was a, it was an emotional movie and it, and it, it was an escapist movie. Um, but, but propagandistic, it, it was, it, it, it it was, but it didn't feel right, and and so that that um, that message at the end of um, the of the passport and and saying don't worry we've got your back, um, I th I think is I think it's really um, smart of you to pick up on that because there's a lot behind that that um, it reveals kind of not just the motives but the approach that China has taken so far. I, I, we, we don't have to linger on Wolf Warrior, but I did have, uh, there was one shot in there. This is a stretch, um, especially because I, I tried to look up exactly how Tiananmen Square is is viewed by Chinese uh, citizens right now and how it's, most people just don't, most Chinese citizens have no awareness of it. It's been effectively erased from the books. But there's a sequence near the end where there's there's a long sequence of tank chasing in there. And there's one shot in there. The, the, the movie's way approach to gore. Uh, it there's just one specific shot that stands out really glaringly. There, a guy gets run over by a tank. Mm. Like in my first, like I had to look up because I I know some stuff of what the history of Tiananmen Square. But like when you see the picture, you think that my head always went to that it was cut off and the guy had to got run over or killed. And in Tiananmen Square, I guess that guy is, no one knows exactly what really happened to him. And there's a lot of different, but it felt like this, like, it felt like subversion. It felt like something was mm. like, like, and I don't know if this is an American reading or watching American lens on watching this and just assuming that, but it felt like a little subversive thing put in there that got past censors or something or an attempt to. Very interesting theory. Or is it a stretch? It's it's it. It's a stretch. My initial my 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 gut reaction, without having a lot of time to think about it, is that it's it's an understandably Western lens on on imagery that um, not only would the censors be very sensitive to, but most a lot of Chinese audiences wouldn't even know. Um, okay. Because images of the tank tank man are scrubbed from the Chinese internet and and so on. Certainly, people people there know about Tiananmen Square and and so on. But um, I like it. Look, I wrote. I mean, it's one of the pleasures of writing a book is stretching <laughs> and trying to and trying to draw those uh, trying to draw those conclusions. 
Uh, this one, Shane, I might I appreciate have to, your generosity on this. I might have to, I might have to pull back a little bit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, but the one thing that's, one thing that's very interesting about Wolf Warrior 2 in general is that there's just, there is a, um, uh, a sense in the film. It's, you know, it really does follow something of a diehard model where there's this, there's this soldier, he's yeah. kind of got to go it alone. Um, that is, that is actually quite subversive in, in Chinese narrative to have the story of a soldier whose first response isn't to call in other soldiers or to call the authorities. This, this sort of like the vigilante model that, that American or Western audiences know so well, the, you know, the Liam Neeson, uh, Mm. model, um, does not work in China because in China you're not supposed to you know, do anything like that without getting the state's okay. help. Because the other movie I watched a uh, part of, and I've been meaning to see this, is uh, Wandering Earth, which mm. I, uh, I've, I've, I've read a little, very little uh, Chinese sci-fi. Chinese sci-fi seems like it's going through like a kind of a new wave. And I'd read uh, the first of the three body problems. So this, yeah, that at least, yeah. I mean, and I mean like the, 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 what I saw, there's like interesting values in there where even though America's, you point out that America has like one or two digs in there, but like the whole thing's about worldwide cooperation, at least at the beginning. It's about worldwide cooperation. This is, the, yeah, the story of, um, gosh, I can never remember. Like, are we floating into the sun or is the sun floating into us? It's like a big sci-fi. Like, I was really vague on it. The sun's getting too big and they have to get away from it the sun's getting too big and it's going to envelop the earth and so we've got to send some astronauts to space to save the day um chinese astronauts um you're right it's about global cooperation but there are i mean that film becomes this kind of fascinating window into who china considers an ally and who um it doesn't because the only the only other astronauts on board the ship that will ultimately save the day are Russian. So there's this sort of like Chinese Russian alliance. I did not pick up on that. That, that is that is fascinating. That that is sort of reflected on screen. And then America is nowhere to be found. In fact, as I, I you probably remember this from the book, like there's this part where um there's that classic sort of sci-fi disaster movie montage of a bunch of cable news channels from around the world. And France is sent, reporting on it and, and Singapore is reporting on it and so on. And and when you cut to America, you have to pause it. And I'm so glad I did. But the, the, the text on the bottom of the screen says something along the lines of um, labor dispute in U.S. slows American effort to save Earth. So basically, like they, they're essentially blaming unions and, and the free market from from allowing America to uh, to jump in and help out. That was a very canny freeze frame you got there. I, I, I remember that distinctly from the book. Yeah, it's um, the, at least um, at least Wondering Earth. Um, it looked better. It, I mean, like it was a big it, and it had big sci fi ideas in it behind it. It's um, yeah, but it was I. I what what does a Chinese uh, crossover into America look like in your in your mind? Like is is it years away? Is it closer? I mean, there's been this there's been this um kind of fascinating and, and from China's perspective rather cruel irony with um the explosion in South Korean entertainment 
with K-pop mm. and Parasite and Squid Game. I mean, these are all these are all things that these are all sort of elements of cultural exports that have the kind of soft power and appeal that China China's leaders are desperate for. And so it's interesting to watch how over the last um, year or so, South Korea entertainment has has just exploded in popularity in the West. Um, I mean, just the key differences, though, is, are that Chinese leaders would never approve the, the production of a film like Parasite um, or the production of a TV show like Squid Game, um, both of which are not just... Um, violent but sort of commentaries on class and class consciousness that that the authorities are constantly policing and um so i think that it it speaks to another liability that that china has when it comes to what it wants to send around the world which is that oftentimes it's it's um its entertainment is made in such a cautious manner that um it might weaken the appeal. I would say if there's a place to look um, for potential crossover, because it's happening a little bit already, it might be with um, Chinese soap operas. Um, China has a an incredible... I mean, you cannot imagine the number of soap operas um, being produced in China, often because a lot of them are historical, and so you can just sort of like... You can just sort of dynasty hop and just go from one dynasty to the other. Um, and... I, I heard a different dynasty in there. Oh yeah, you can very dynasty, Western dynasty ones again. Hop. Yeah, totally. You can dynasty hop and have a different dynasty in each dynasty. That actually that that, that works. Um, but I think that um, you know the 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 soap opera I could see sort of having. You could imagine a world where one of those comes over and and breaks out in a way. Um, I think I, it seems to me that the the authorities there who have always from from their earliest days of opening up to the West wanted to export their culture. Um, they've decided that there are places beyond the U.S. to look for for such efforts. One of your last chapters is on uh, Kenya mainly um, and about the Belt and Road Initiative. And, and I guess uh, is do you want to explain that a little more because is it is it basically just that this is one of their like if the u.s had tried to like make movies around the marshall plan in europe but the belt and road initiative is a completely different beast from the way at least you describe it in the book yeah i don't think it's that different from the marshall plan um in that it is um it is a program that is threading chinese influence into many countries around the world. In this case, there are dozens of countries that are part of this grand effort to reorient global trade routes around China. So this can come in the form of, you know, airports in Jakarta or railways in Nairobi, um, ports, military stations. Um, If you go overseas to basically any part of Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, Africa and the Middle East, chances are you will sooner than rather than later see some kind of Chinese influence um, in the form of that kind of infrastructure, aid, and investment. Um, what, what I was fascinated to learn more about was just how this Belt and Road Initiative network of countries is also being formed into a kind of distribution network for Chinese movies and TV shows. 
and the the movies and TV shows that are being exported out of China allow it to do a couple things. One of which is introduce, uh, in the, in the case I spent most of my time in Kenya, um, introduce Kenyans to this country that is, you know, suddenly appeared out of nowhere, basically, and started building a train station in their backyard and building uh, hotels and apartment complexes and repaving their roads. This is a way for them to kind of learn a little bit about what the what the country behind that effort is like. Of course, because it's China, though, there's a very specific image of China being sent to these countries. Um, it is obviously the only the most sanctioned entertainment is going to be available for viewing um, in these countries because it's often the, the first impression a lot of these people might have of the country. So, so that's one element. And then I think the other is that a lot of these countries have um, politicians who have either recently decided to move away from the West um, or have come to believe that the West in America specifically is less reliable than it used to be. And so um, there's a there's a political shift happening as well um, when it comes to sort of what superpower do they want to align themselves with? And in the case of Kenya, I was struck to learn that so many of the politicians there are very um, uh, politically conservative, socially conservative. And as one film minister in Nairobi told me, he loves importing movies from China because they've already been censored for him. Rewinding back, one of the most interesting things you talk about uh, for me, uh, and you, you synthesize very well, is the idea of you use the political theory of soft power, and you talk about how American cinema has been a big on the big forefront yeah. of that. I mean, you go, you have in, weaved out really very well done throughout the book uh, a very great economic history of um, cinema in the U.S., but with a worldwide view of why it took off in America as opposed to theaters in Europe being kind of decimated after World War One, setting those industries back. Um, you talk about, um, I guess, so China basically uh, banned U.S. films in 1950 and then nationalized their industry in 1955? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, but then, um, and then... Just it was, it's such a gradual effort to get movies back into back into or U.S. movies over. It's mostly what the '80s and the '90s. You have the the Fugitive was a big one in the '90s. You mentioned yeah. The basically the um, after Mao took over in the in the mid twentieth century, the number of Hollywood movies let in was few and far between. It was, I mean, there's all these, there's these kind of random examples of um, like Superman getting in and then being taken out because people, the authorities were like, this is like way too, too much Western commercialism for our communist nation. <laughs> and, and so they, um, it's not until 1994 that American movies start flowing into China at all. And the reason why I found this so fascinating was because after Mao um, came to power, really the only entertainment in town, if you were going to the movies, was to see some kind of Chinese propaganda. So think of this, think a lot, like a lot of really dry World War II narratives or very boring documentaries about the glories of the communist state. And so 
when people in the 80s and 90s started to have other alternate forms of entertainment in the form of karaoke lounges or, crucially, pirated VHS tapes of other countries' entertainment and primarily America's entertainment, well, they stopped going to the movies as much. And the, Amer- and the Chinese film, the, the Chinese exhibition industry, the theater industry, started to really um, hurt. And, and ticket sales were really flat for a while and actually falling. And so while the um, Chinese economy overall was starting to thread itself into the West more and more, this is still like five years or so before China would join the World Trade Organization, which was the big moment in China's kind of um, opening up to the world economically. Uh, A group of Hollywood executives working in in China and in Japan said to authorities in Beijing, if you let Hollywood movies in, it will help your ticket sales and it will support the theater. So The Fugitive was the first one in, um, Broken Arrow, True Lies, all these like great 90s movies um, that everyone probably watched at like 2 a.m. on HBO at some point. Um, They started going into China. It worked. They did. They were massive hits. I put hits in air quotes because... A hit at the time was like $3 million or something like that. Um, But they did really boost ticket sales at the Chinese theaters. However, crucially, from the very start, China has always followed a dialectic that translates something to um, use the West for its tools, but keep China as its essence. And, And so whenever they started allowing movies like The Fugitive in, they set up a system where a percentage of the the ticket sales to American films necessarily had to funnel toward the support and the production of um, Chinese propaganda films. So they wanted to make sure that there was a bit of a, a corrective element in the system where, okay, if we're going to let this Western influence in, we have to make sure that it's, it is in a way that serves us and that ultimately we can use to further our own aims. And in this case, making sure that there's always going to be a bit of a, uh, an ideological cinematic counterweight. Throughout the book, when I was reading it, the instance I kept thinking of where a state simultaneously was censoring a lot of movies, but also putting a lot of faith into the propaganda of a movie of what a movie could do was, I was specifically Russia. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. Russia. Eisenstein, um, Tarkovsky, just, you know, the birth of the montage theory coming from them, Kuleshov, like, um, and some of those b- broke out, but it always seemed like when the censorship was always tying them behind their back and they can never, what's the big difference between why, say, Russia's cinema never really ex- accelerated worldwide and China's at least economically, if it's not going to get outside of China, is still drawing a certain amount of money. Is it like the Hollywood influence coming in? Because the reason you mentioned it in the book is you talk about, you go all the way back to Battleship Potemkin and talk about um, Russia trying to get uh, Battleship Potemkin to its citizens and realizing it couldn't it couldn't have that many Hollywood movies coming in if it, to compete with it. So it had to cut them off. And that's a strategy that you're just describing China to a certain extent has to do too, or at least within numbers, even the growing number of the of US titles that allow, they still have a very limited number. Right. What a fascinating question. I mean, I think that the um, Russia, you know, first of all, for as 
big of a country as it is, and we kind of started, I think a lot of people realize this with, with the recent sanctions, it's not a massive market. Um, like the, the box office there is, is I think surprisingly small, um, given the size, the size of the country. Um, and, and so you need, you need there to be economic reasons to support like the sophistication of, of filmmaking, right? Like there's, there's a reason there's only a f- like two markets in the world that can make big blockbuster spectaculars, the U.S. and China. It's because their home markets are big enough to support that kind of investment. Um, so, um, so that's one, that's one thing is I think that there might just be sort of China vis-a-vis Russia certainly has an economic advantage. Um, Russia certainly, uh, during the Soviet era took a very similar approach to China where it was always going to make sure that it put something of a ceiling on the amount of Western influence that, um, that American movies had. And, and, and the Potemkin, um, example that you referenced there is, um, is really apt because, um, when the battleship Potemkin came out in the 1920s, it opened opposite, uh, the adventures of Robin Hood. And when the adventures of Robin Hood, which was this big swashbuckling Hollywood romance started making more money, the Russian authorities, the Soviet authorities, um, pooled it from certain theaters and then eventually started publishing results that made it seem like Potemkin had outperformed Robin Hood when that really wasn't the case. And that's a very, that happens actually quite frequently in China. These moments where authorities decide that the worst possible thing that um, the world can think of their market is that their own people prefer Western entertainment to Chinese entertainment. And so that explains why you have all of these efforts um, to make sure that there's only a certain number of American movies let in every year and that, um, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. There's all these kind of um, checks put on, on the system controls so that Chinese movies at the end of the year, oh my God, look yet again, Chinese movies sold more tickets than than Hollywood movies did. Um, and so, yeah, very similar, very similar in, in the Soviet era, too. You mentioned at one point that there's box office manipulation rampant in, or pretty bad box office manipulation in China where to switch switch over a, a certain movie to a propaganda movie to make the propaganda movie look better. Yeah, I mean, and it was most glaring. There have been a few glaring examples um, uh, that I would say was explicit manipulation where there were these, there were these stories of um, people buying tickets to uh, the new, one of the new Terminator movies and instead be, get being handed a stub that made it seem like they'd bought a ticket to some Chinese propaganda movie. That's explicit manipulation. Um, and the MPAA at one point did a study where they found that I think something like uh, 11 uh, ticket sales are being undercover under, co- under counted by something like 11%. But I would say that there's, um, I'd say the more effective manipulation is the implicit manipulation. And this can mean, um, you know, everything from blacking out certain weekends so that only Chinese movies can be released during certain times um, to also saying, hey, Shane, you know, I see that you 
run this massive uh, engineering company? Like, wouldn't it be great if you treated your mo- your employees to a movie on Friday? And oh, wouldn't it be great if the movie that you took them to was this propaganda film about Mao during the war? Like, there's there can be those kinds of efforts made too to make sure um, that the the Chinese movies that they want to succeed get an upper hand. Well, I mean, the, the the level of censorship is is it always seemed like the headline. It's the thing that most film people have been interested in over the years. But even casually, just because um, you, you bring you bring up things like um, uh, I guess I guess Iron Man three having the scene in, or or just randomly cutting like so many different movies cutting gay subplots out for one scene, and it always seemed like a not our problem issue just because they domestically we'd still get to see the whole thing or worldwide it was just china that was getting denied it but then in recent years there's been a push that has to be uniform to the cut that's in uh worldwide has to be shown in china for some of these instances too yes um that was a that is something that that the chinese authorities have been very sensitive about um and it's the idea that if you if you make a cut um, or you change a movie for China specifically, that you should change it everywhere in the world. It doesn't happen all the time. I mean, there was this story that you might have seen last week about uh, Warner Brothers cutting six seconds from the new uh, Harry Potter movie that um, alluded to Dumbledore's homosexuality. Um, okay. Those... Those six seconds were cut for release in China. They're, I don't, I'm sure they're being cut for other markets, but that's not being cut from every market, right? Okay. Um, but there are also other examples, though, of Chinese authorities basically telling American authorities, like, we want this changed and we want to make sure that we're not the only one who is seeing this version. I think one part of it is... Uh, sort of ego, I think that there's a sense like, wait, um, I don't want, you know, I don't want to be pandered to, I don't want to be getting some kind of specialized or, or sort of. That's a little understandable. Stop, I stop patting me on the head. Well, but it is, but I think the, but I think the larger purpose is that, that China, Chinese leaders have understood from the very start that, um, they, that there is great power in the American film writ large and that if they can influence what a movie says, specifically what it says about China anywhere, that these films can become de facto commercials for the country, regardless of where they're shown. That seems like the more dangerous kind of pernicious part of Cause my theory reading all this stuff with um, what China's going through is I mean, the, the the central part of the book is the fact that during the pandemic, China's box office overtook America's box office. China now has more movie theaters than the United States. So they are winning in the movie wars, even if they're isolating themselves. And yet everything they do successful, I keep thinking they're, they have one hand tied behind their backs because state censorship just just doesn't last in the end. Like, it's just... It, 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 it just never seems like it, it's always seems short sighted, especially the stuff that they're pushing for that. They like I, I get I get a countrywide values that that makes a little more sense long term. But some of the social stuff like I, I keep coming back to this. The gay thing is just like, why do you have to keep cutting gay subplots? Like, do you like 
you're going to eventually have to come to a reckoning at some point that you have gay citizens. Like it just doesn't. Yeah, although I think it's, I think it functions. I think it functions as a kind of um, as a way to kind of telegraph to audiences there what they maybe not maybe not that they're in denial that they have gay citizens, but that um, gay citizens should still consider themselves inferior to straight citizens because you're right. Like you can go to gay bars in China. You can meet gay men and women in relationships relatively open. I'd say not certainly as frequently open as people in the, in the U S are. But if you're living in that society where you are living your life as an open gay person, but then going to movies and knowing that the government approves every frame and seeing a movie where it seems like you are supposed to be kept quiet or kept off, you know, kept literally out of the shot. Um, that will have a psychic effect too, because audiences in China know they've been trained to read the movies as implicit statements of their government. So I think that there can be, it can still have uh, the desired effect there. Okay. I mean, I'm, and again, I feel like maybe I'm looking at this. A lot of this is Western lenses. Like I keep thinking that censorship just breeds um, a willingness to defy it eventually. So that's, I guess, where I'm, I'm coming from. One of my favorite chapters in the book I want to ask you about is the um, chapter about the uh, expatriate or the uh, directors. Like you specifically have the story of Rennie Harlan going over to China and becoming a director. And I found it great where like certain directors that get stuck in director's jail have a second life over just redoing, uh, teaching the teaching Chinese filmmakers how to make it so that uh, at least within a, a small windows before they learn their skills and don't need Rennie Harlan's anymore. Yeah, no, it's, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a kind it's a, they call it technology transfer, right? The, the idea that you can sort of use the West for its expertise and learn how to do it yourself. The only problem is that the directors who are available for such gigs might not be the people we send as ambassadors of the craft. Um, that being said, I spent a lot of time now with Rennie, um, who I guess his best known, um, Hollywood films would be like Die Hard 2 and, uh, Cliffhanger before, uh, Cutthroat Island, you know, all but torpedoed his career. Um, and I gotta say the guy seems happier than ever. And, um, he strikes me as someone who just needs to compulsively be, be making a movie at all times. And if the, if he can do it in China, he'll do it in China. Um, but it was, I mean, it was funny because um, I, I just really was, I was on this set. It was rather surreal. I was on this set like an hour outside Beijing watching Rennie Harlan direct this action movie with an actress who spoke Mandarin, but not Cantonese, and an actor who spoke Cantonese, but not Mandarin. So they were delivering their lines to each other in different languages. And then um, the uh, director, Rennie, didn't speak either. 
So he was like using translators and pantomiming. And <laughs> I, I mean, it, it felt like it shouldn't work. And yet it kind of did. Now, I mean, I saw the movie and, and yeah, maybe that's debatable, but I mean, they got it done. <laughs> they got it done and it came out and, you know, he did what he was hired to do, which was show them how to run the set, run the set and sort of tell this kind of story. How many movies has Rennie Harlan made in China by this point? I don't have an exact count. I think it's probably it's at least three or four, but I know he's got a a bunch in development you i think you mentioned a, a long kiss good goodbye uh a good night uh, remake which i mean mm-hmm. it, it just there's something promising about there's certain directors that get put in director's jail and most of them don't deserve it and so you're just happy that maybe this the crazier one is the um the seven years in tibet filmmaker uh was it jean jacques Gonard? yes did, mm-hmm. um he was he flat out at one point says like they, they asked him if he wanted to make a movie and he's like i abandon your country <laughs> Right. I mean, and he was because Seven Years in Tibet had come out in the 90s and um, it was this it was interpreted as this sort of valorization of the the Dalai Lama. And so he um, he was banned. Uh, Brad Pitt, the star of the film, was banned. Um, And and then they wanted to hire him for this movie he made called Wolf Totem. And and the authorities explained to him that they actually wanted him to um, direct it because he had been banned because he um, he thought to they thought to themselves you know if people see that we, this is who we hired they will receive its messaging with more legitimacy and more credit it would have more cre- credibility um, because the movie was about these environmental themes that they kind of wanted to get across and they thought well if we make it look like this kind of like quote unquote state agitator made it audiences might say it's not necessarily just sort of a government cinematic mouthpiece are there is is environmental themes something that's like strong in some chinese cinema or are there like you know in the west we also have a tendency to uh, um especially with um a lot of the uh, um diplomacies sometimes like arbitrarily um you know, dislikes certain Chinese policies or declare them totalitarian, but it seems like on like, um, say like, uh, 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 with the, uh, the Chinese policy on things like TikTok and like keeping it away from kids is something that like, it makes sense. It's something we could like, is there, is there interesting values or interesting ideas coming from some Chinese cinema, like, like the environmental values or something like that? themes or something like that? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, Chinese, mm, Chinese propaganda has always um, been a mirror of the state. Um, you know, back whenever the the primary medium of Chinese propaganda were these posters that they would mass produce, um, you can go through and you can kind of see the the priorities of the government being reflected in whatever was on these posters. And, um, and the movies are very similar to that. And I think that, I think environmentalism or maybe I wouldn't call it environmentalism, but like a kind of, uh, a new sobriety about environmental effects and, um, alternative sources of energy. That's certainly, um, something that I think China has been, pretty aggressive about um and and i'm but but i also think that like i mean i remember even hearing stories about 
you know, after the one child policy was ended and families were encouraged to have more than one child, movies started showing bigger families. Like there's, you know, there's cons, there's sort of like a, it's sort of a, I mean, it really is almost like I said, like a mirroring of, of whatever the government wants. I mean, when, when tensions during COVID uh, really rose between China and the U.S., um, a ton of Chinese movies about the Korean War were put into production. And, and why? Because the U.S. doesn't look so good in that one. I, I didn't realize that movies demonizing Japan were acceptable and and, and ha- doing well. Like you mentioned uh, Pearl, Pearl Harbor making good money in China too. Like, I guess it makes sense. But I had a, I have one really big pet theory I wanted to throw past you. Oh, I love pet the, theories. Yeah. Stuff. Well, for, Okay. I, well, I do have a question for you. I bring up a theory. Do you see, uh, and this is hard to predict, do you see... Uh, any of these state stipulations laxing? Do you see free filmmakers getting more freedom in China or is it going to be a thing of just, it depends on the up down day to day of the party and success politically in, in the country? I don't, I don't, I don't think so right now. I mean, because what's happened in the Chinese film industry has been a reflection of what's happening across China, which is this massive consolidation of power by Xi. And so, um, I don't see that changing anytime soon. There have been times in the past where um, Chinese authorities have said, are, are the constraints we put on filmmakers are hindering the kind of movies we can make and the art that we can produce. This happened after the release of um, Kung Fu Panda sent Chinese leaders into this kind of existential spiral because they were like, why did it take a Western company to um, produce a movie about our mascot, our national tradition, that kind of thing? And and they actually ended up... I really wanted to ask you about Kung Fu Panda, yeah. They ended up drafting legislation that was like um, saying, you know, we we can't keep putting these restraints on our animators. We need to sort of let them roam freely because that's where the best stories are found. And And so... You can imagine a world like so. So that kind of that kind of ebb and flow um, is is you know kind of constantly happening. It just so happens that across Chinese society, not just in culture right now, there's been a real turn inward and a really aggressive stance taken um, uh, across all ways of life, frankly. And so um, I don't. I don't see those structures changing anytime soon. And what's particularly interesting is like in the eighties, we had what's known as the fifth generation of filmmakers like um, Zhang Yimou and Chen Kaiga. And they made a lot of movies that were never screened in China or rarely screened in China, but were these fant- like these kind of like incredibly acclaimed films on the world stage, like films like Farewell My Concubine or Raise the Red Lantern. And and they were movie they were never shown in China because they were so oppositional and antagonistic to the state and that they and they really challenged the state. It's it's interesting to me that there's there's not really been any similar um generation that's formed in recent years. In fact, many members of that fifth generation are working within China today, but working within the system. 
Well, it it also seems like um, if the box office isn't going to be is a is the biggest factor in there that they don't have to you know adjust to uh, audiences or factors like that. So like. I guess it could get worse even. It sounds like if the consolidation of power gets stronger too. It certainly um, could. It certainly could. I and and I think um I think China right now with 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 COVID and um it's sort of push abroad. It's 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 on the defensive a little bit too. And so um that's only going to make them even more um stringent about what is shown on screen. Um, so the pet theory I want to probably wind down on with is basically these movies from, I mean, you know, I only really watch Wolf, Wolf Warrior 2, but if they're emulating the big Hollywood blockbusters, you mentioned the hero's journey in the book at one point, the, there's typically three act structures that are about the individual. And if that's going to be popular in China, like... Okay, Wolf uh, Wolf Warrior Two would the uh, the Russos did not want their an executive producer credit on it, but um, one movie that just came out that does have their executive producer credit um, in America is uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and it's directed by the duo the Dan Daniels. And I was listening to a podcast with them talk about different types of structures, and they were talking about uh, eastern eastern four act structures. And I'm going to I'm going to butcher it, but they had one called. Kishantong Ketsu is a four-act structure that is avoiding conflict and is all about change. And those seem like the th ways that I feel like East and West cinema can start to inform each other. And if Western cinema is going to influence China with three-act structures, that's all about the individual. Like, if, especially if those are popular. Like, how does... How does that maintain itself with China? Yeah, no, you're, you're, um, I, I like this theory a lot. And I, I want to learn more about that, that four act structure because there's, there's this question, which is that, yeah, like, what is the role of the hero's journey in a collectivist society? Um, and so I think that the, you can see it when you watch some Chinese films, I'd say like Chinese films with less Western influence than Wolf Warrior 2. Um, to Western eyes, they can feel very random because it's just like, it's just sort of zigzagging um, from plot to plot to plot to plot. Um, I mean, I would even hear stories of movies where like you're following one character, you're following Shane for three quarters of the movie and then you meet Eric and then you, so you just finish with Eric. Like it's just, it can feel more... Um, haphazard but i think you're right i think the um the the national origin story um of the respective countries i think reveals quite a bit about the narratives that are popular among them so we are uh, america is a nation founded by rebel colonialists who forge their own way and differentiate themselves from the monarchy as individuals um china has a national origin, um, not just of 5,000 years of history, but um, of a collective uprising um, and a communist collectivist society. So the narratives that are put forward and celebrated and frankly, just sort of inherent in both of those countries um, are going to reflect that. And so you're right, there's going to be um, a kind of core tension, I would say, from either end, um, 
not just in terms of the, the potential politics of celebrating the individual um, or celebrating the collective, but also just the aesthetic uh, value, the aesthetic pleasure to each respective audience. I mean, it's 5,000 years versus 200, so, but maybe well, we, we all have something to inform each other. But I, I should mention, by the way, that 4X structure is a Japanese film structure, right. is, a, is a story structure. I should, yeah, it, I, it was mentioned in anime, so I don't want to, uh, but um, Eric Schwartzel, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for writing this book. It's it's illuminating. I, I thank you for writing this book and thank you for being on the podcast. Oh my gosh. Thank you. This was so fun. Shane, I loved going into, t- I knew, I knew when I was reading about your show, I was like, this is going to be so my shit. I loved it. Yeah. I totally, I totally, I could, I can, I love going deep on this kind of thing. 